got so mucho we've got so mucho said we got so baby don't mucho we've got so 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 and the pony we got so mucho the we got so Hi, this is Graham Park, and when I'm in London, I like to listen to the Mucho Soul Show. Welcome back to the Mucho Soul Show on your radio where this week we have a special treat for you. A few weeks ago saw the release of a brand new retrospective look back at the birth of Acid House from the legendary Hacienda Cream and Nottingham Garage DJ Mr Graham Park. Long Live House Volume 1 of the 1980s is a 3 CD double vinyl pack collection that includes many underground and sought after 80s house gems from the likes of Ten City, Chippy, Fingers Inc, Farley Jackmaster Funk and many, many more. And Frau Money is one of the most interesting collections of 80s house that have emerged in recent years. So to coincide with its release, we recently caught up with Graham at a hotel in London to have a chat and a look back at his 35-year career as a DJ and to chat about his influences, his musical journey, the Hacienda and of course this latest album release. So stick with us now for the next hour as Mucho Soul presents 
and In Conversation special with the one and only Mr. Graham Park. Hi Graham. firstly many thanks for taking time out for your very very busy schedule to have a chat with us down here in London and congratulations on the release of this new album which we have on the table Long Live House Volume 1 the 80s. Firstly let's take you back to the very beginnings of your journey through music. We understand that much of your musical grounding as a child came from your clarinet playing granddad and your Motown loving mum. But what other influences played a part in your early love of music and what artists or styles were you into as a young boy growing up in Scotland? Right, well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. And that's a really good first question because you've obviously done your research. My my late grandpa, who I just thought was amazing, had his own big band, the George Wood Orchestra. And when he gave me his clarinet when I was 11, I just couldn't believe it. Um, and I grew up, my mum's always into music, Radio 1 was always on when I was a kid and she used to play Motown stuff. And then um, one of the first records I bought in 1970 was uh, Children of the Revolution by Mark Bullen and T-Rex. And if you're all thinking, wow, that's a pretty cool first record, don't worry, it all kind of went a bit downhill after that. Uh, I was a massive fan of Mud. Susie Quattro, obviously, Leather Pants, you know. Um, so basically the glam stuff. Yeah, all the glam stuff. And then, of course, that leads you to, like, obviously, like in Mark Bowler and T-Rex, that, that other man in makeup, David Bowie, was quite alluring and then got into that. And I think it was uh, when I heard the Pinups album, which was his, like, uh, that was one with all the covers on. Covers album, it? yeah. That just blew my mind. <laughs> Of course, what happened in 1977 when I was 14, I, I, I used to listen to John Peel and I heard The Clash and I heard The Damned yeah. and The Sex Pistols. And then that just was, wow, that was a four, I was a 14-year-old boy with raging pubescent hormones and building up an anger and punk rock just touched a nerve and I loved all that. But the thing about, I really loved The Clash because they kind of touched on reggae and even a bit of disco. And then, of course... 
just to confuse my 14-year-old brain even more. I was loving punk rock while all, my, while all my friends at school were into Genesis and Rush and Deep Purple. I just didn't get that at all. Suddenly, I'm in, I'm in the back of my dad's car in Aberdeen and listening to Radio 1, and Donna Summer's I Feel Love comes on. What the hell is this? This is the future. link that with the magnificent dance by the clash because it had a similar kind of disco-esque funky vibe that just led me to always have eclectic taste just i've always had eclectic taste and the older i get the more i like to join the dots so i always say to people who are very young who are very focused on one thing that they like say no 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 so you know it's all about joining the dots to me don't you ever stop long enough to start take your car out of that gear don't you ever stop long enough to start get your car out of that gear on to the beginnings of your DJing career Mm -hmm. we know you originally had dreams of becoming a music journalist and then later worked behind the counter at Nottingham's famed selector disc 
So how did you actually end up in a Nottingham record shop and what led you to becoming a DJ? Right, well, it wasn't specifically a music journalist I wanted to be. I wanted to be a proper political journalist because I was going to go to Napier College in Edinburgh to do journalism. But my dad um, got a job uh, in the East Midlands and the whole family moved down there. So I'm not going to England, I'm staying in Scotland. So I finished my hires, which is like the Scottish equivalent of A-levels. But then I thought, I've got to pop down in the summer to see my family. So suddenly I'm in the East Midlands, Nottingham, Leicester, Derby. They're all like really close to each other. A bit further, you're in Birmingham, Coventry. And the reason I got a job in Selectedisc is because when I was at school, I worked in a record shop called Bruce's. Best Saturday job going. And uh, when I was living in the East Midlands in Nottingham and playing in bands, I used to hang out in the in the record shops. I got to know the people behind the counter. And um, one day... They were really short-staffed. Somebody, t- two people had called off sick. And I was in there, I said, look, I've, I've done this before, master bag system. I don't know, tilt- really? Yeah, I used to work in a record shop. Right, come on, you can help out. And I just got behind the, the counter and I knew how everything worked and how everything was filed away. And they were like, do you want a job? I went, I'd love a job. And I ended up working in there. And then the, the guy, the late Brian Selby, who owned Select Disc, he um, bought the Adlib Club uh, in Nottingham, changed its name to the Garage Club, didn't ask me, told me, because he liked the music I played in the shop, I was going to be the DJ. I reluctantly agreed. Because, as simple as that. Yeah, because I, 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 play, I played saxophone and sang in bands, and that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a pop star. Suddenly, I was DJing, because I didn't want to lose my job in the record shop, so I agreed to do it. And I just took to it like a duck to water. I thought, this is amazing, because at the end of the night, all the money I get is mine. I don't have to split it with the rest of the band. I don't have to lug loads of equipment about. I don't have to hire a van. It's basically create a records, back of a taxi, gig. And I just got to play the music I love and people love the music I played. So I said, yeah, I'll do this. And that was 35 years ago and I'm still doing it now. Just returning back to the um, the selector disc years, during the informative years, 
What styles of music were you initially into? And then when did you first start discovering house music? Tell us about some of those very, very early house discoveries, including some of those that are featured on your album. Well, when I started DJing in 1984, it was pretty much anything and everything. I used to play my old soul and funk records and a bit of classic disco. Now, in the early 80s, most records had 12-inch extended versions or 12-inch dub mixes. Bands like the Blow Monkeys, Aztec Camera, Joseph K. Orange Juice, they all had 12-inch dub versions or 12-inch extended versions. So you'd play all of those in amongst all the old soul, funk and disco. But then all the early electro stuff started appearing. Johnson Crew, Planet Rock, um, Africa Bambata, all the Arthur Baker and John Roby productions. Um, that was like listening to something like that was from another galaxy. And then John Roby, who worked with Arthur Baker on those records, he was um, working with Eleanor Mills with Seabank. They had the similar rhythms to the electro stuff, so that all kind of worked together. And then all the, then the, the early hip-hop stuff, which was quite up-tempo, things like Big Daddy Kane, Roxanne Shante, EPMD. Um, so it was all kind of a big mishmash of stuff. And then I remember in as, as the singles buyer in Selector Disc, once a week, he'd be, I think it was every Friday, he'd be on the phone to the distributors. And I used to like talking to the independent distributor about what independent records, what rough trade releases you wanted, and have you got the new, we've got the new Aztec camera track and stuff. And then um, he says, right, one last thing, Graham. Got a, got these 12-inch uh, singles from Chicago. Uh, don't know what they're like. They look quite interesting. I said, yeah, give us one of each. And um, I'll check them out if I don't like them. He said, if you don't like them, just send them back. And then, so the next morning, Saturday morning, which is when you, all, the, all the stuff arrived, so I opened up, and there they were at the top, Chippy, if you only knew, JM Silk Music is the key. So I'm going to play these. Took the shrink wrap off, put JM Silk on. Oh my God, what the hell is this? That stab beginning, and then Keith Nanali's beautiful, soaring, soulful vocal, but the really kind of regimental electronic drum rhythms. And then this weird kind of synthy bass line. Um, I just thought these are amazing. Meanwhile, my fellow workers behind the counter who were into Sisters of Mercy were like, Parky, we'll get this rubbish off. I went, rubbish? I cannot wait to play this at the garage tonight, you know? And that was the, the that, that's what we came to know as house music. But the thing about GM Silk, Music is the Key, which is one of the tracks on, on the uh, uh, Long Live House album, that was a Steve Silk Hurley production before anyone knew who Steve Silk Hurley was and the mix, house key mix that is on the album and that we used to play is a Farley Jackmaster Funk remix and then about two years later this is 1986, so about two years later Jack Your Body, Steve Silk Hurley Love Can't Turn Around by um, Farley Jackmaster Funk with the late Daryl Pandy and Jesse Saunders they were the first two international house hits and that's what this album's about rather than go for the obvious ones that everyone knows. I thought I'd dig a bit deeper. So Chippy, if you only knew, and JM Silk Music is the key. They're the first two tracks on the album because they're the first two house tracks that really kind of struck a nerve with me and got under my skin. <laughs>
The age-old argument surrounding the North and Midlands getting into house music long before London and the South is a well-worn and tired debate, as Mm -hmm. I'm sure you probably know. But how true do you think that claim really is? And what do you consider to be the most important factor from your perspective that ignited the explosion of acid house as a culture and nationwide movement back in the late 80s? Ecstasy. It's, It's true to a point. I mean... Um, I do, they're that, they're that north-south rivalry, yeah, yeah, yeah. The way I see it is, in the East Midlands, the Midlands and the North, um, there was uh, a house scene that was quite big, but equally in London, it was more pockets around London, so Jazzy M was doing his thing, Ashley Beadle was doing his thing. This is all pre-Shoom and pre-Spectrum, right? There were little pockets of it, but the difference was, up north, we had the soul and funk all dares, and a lot of the early house stuff would fit in with that soul uh, stuff because of the soulful vocals. I, and obviously, Hacienda, we were pack- well, before I joined in 88, Mike Pickering was packing them in, but it wasn't just house, it was a real mix of things. Like I said earlier, you were mixing hip hop, with house, but I, I do believe that the the, the scene already which started in the north, but there were pockets of it in the south. And then by summer '88, then you can forget all that north-south nonsense. It just became one. The UK became one massive jacking zone, basically. But the thing that really that catalyst, I remember Mike Pickering, who who, who I knew and I'd worked with, and we we'd done stuff together. Um, he rang me up and said, "I want you to come and." cover for me at Hacienda while I'm on holiday for three weeks in June I went oh I'd love to it's an honour thank you so much he goes yeah but you're going to have to come up uh, before I go on holiday I said why we did the Hacienda together in February and I've been to Hacienda to see bands and been to club nights there he goes no you don't understand things have changed I mean what do you mean things have changed you play we, you play the same stuff in Manchester that I do in Nottingham okay admittedly you've got a bigger club than me he's like no trust me you need to come up, and, I'm, and I've got to be firm here. If you don't come up, you're not doing it. Oh my God! Okay, so I, I, I me and my uh, wife at the time, we got the train up to not uh, to, to Manchester, and we went to Hacienda. And uh, as soon as we went in the front door, straight away, I thought, bloody hell, what the hell is happening here? Because instead of everyone kind of dressed up. They were dressed down. That smiley, the bandana, but they had this. Everyone had this wild look in their eyes, which I'm like, "What's going on? This is a bit weird." Went to the DJ box, knocked on the door. Mike opened the door, and he had that same wild look in his face. Started giving me all these mad hugs. Ten minutes later, I'm on the dance floor, and the party by Craze came on, and I got the tingly thing on the back of my neck, and up the top of my head, and spreading from my shoulders down my arms and then all 
And I was like, oh, I get it, I get it. And that was the catalyst, I think. So the combination of this weird um, four to the floor, euphoric electronic dance music that we, that we came to know as House and this little magic pill together, everyone just came together under this umbrella of Acid House and embraced it and got loved up. It was just a very special time. That was 30 years ago, it doesn't seem like 10 minutes ago. Many of the most important house pioneers are featured on your album, mm. but are there any particular artists and DJs that led the way for you and really stood out, particularly those early days, both in the US and over here in the UK? Well, yes, straight away, I'm going to say two names. Uh, I had a friend who moved to New York and he used to send me cassettes of Tony Humphreys on WBLS and Marley Marl on Kiss FM. And I love both because Tony Humphreys was mixing, doing like a mix show, mixing disco with a lot of house stuff and a little bit of soul and funk. But Marley Marr was doing all that cutting up and scratching hip hop. Um, and I used to love those when those tapes arrived every, every week or so. And I took a lot of influence from those. And then when I was very fortunate enough to go to DJ in America in 1989, I DJed uh, I had a monthly night at the Mars Club in New York, and that's when I met people like Arthur Baker and John Benitez and John Roby as well. And then I got to DJ in Chicago, where I met um, Marshall Jefferson. And to get those 
the people that I thought were amazing, whose records I played, come up to me and go, unlike other British DJs who've been here, you can actually mix. That was a kind of a, a real buzz. And, you know, going back to the album, um, I just try and reflect some of those um, influential early influences on there, like Liz Therese um, and Marshall Jefferson, obviously, with On the House and Derek May. Derek May taught me how to play baseball in his in his backyard in Detroit in 1989. <laughs> Showed me how to hold the bat and how to hit the ball. I'll never forget that. He he remembers that as well. But then Ten City, uh, Marshall Jefferson producing Ten City with Byron Stingley on vocals. Amazing, amazing stuff. touched on it earlier but we have to talk to you about the Hacienda um, how and when did you first become involved with that particular legendary club what was being played there when you first started and can you recall any particular standout nights there yeah well when I lived in Nottingham uh, I was a, and worked in Selected Disc I was a massive Factory Records fan really really was and the fact that Factory Records home of Joy Division latterly New Order um, the fact that the, they had a nightclub called the Hacienda 
and the fact that Tony Wilson, who was on the telly doing these great music shows, I just thought, I've got to go in there. So I used to get the train up to uh, Manchester and I, and I saw Orange Juice there, I saw Joseph Kay there, I saw Aztec Camera. Did you see Madonna there? No, <laughs> because um, that was a, a that was a tube uh, night. The yeah. tube, and though, uh, annoyingly, I was actually a researcher on the tube. I was the East Midlands researcher on the oh, tube, right. but I couldn't get to it that night. But you know, Madonna um, denies all knowledge of ever playing at Hacienda. <laughs> to, the, the late Tony Welsh used to tell this great story. He was at this award ceremony, and Madonna was there. And he went over and said, hey, Madonna, I'm T Tony Wilson, you played at my, your first ever British performance was at my club, the Hacienda in, in Manchester. And according to Tony, she looked at him and said, I'm sorry, I must have clean forgotten that, you know, but you know. Um, but um, before 87, 88, when house music came along, the club nights in there were kind of a real mishmash of stuff. Yeah. But the gigs, sometimes the, the club would be empty and it was full of lots of moody men with fringes and long overcoats. Yeah. Um, and it was was this kind of like new romantic? Yeah, selector. exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I used to have an amazing fringe myself. I mean, you've you still got your hair. I do. I, I do miss my hair. But I had an amazing kind of Phil Oakey type fringe. But I dyed it blonde because obviously you didn't look like Phil Oakey, did I? Um, and then with glasses. But... Um, yeah, they, 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 were, they were great times, but then house music came along when that little magic pill and the whole thing went absolutely through the roof. Jack the Groove, Jack the Groove. Jack, 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 jack the groove. Jack the groove. Jack the groove. Jack, 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 jack the groove. Jack the groove. Jack the groove. Jack, 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 jack the groove. Jack the groove. Jack the groove. Jack, 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 jack the Tell us a little bit about your remix and production work of the 80s and in particular how you went about setting up your submission label. So when I lived in Nottingham, when I was working at the garage, I, I was introduced to a guy called Tim Andrews who owned Square Dance Studios in Derby and a guy called John Crossley who worked, he was an engineer who worked at Square Dance Studios in Derby and they said, you're the DJ, we've got an engineer and we've got a recording studio we should do something, we should make music or do a record label. And that's how Submission came about. And um, on the album, Submit to the Beat by Groove, 
that's actually me in 1987. And uh, when I dug that out to put on the album, I couldn't believe how, okay, maybe I'm biased, but I couldn't believe how fresh it sounded after 30, more than 30 years. So I've since been digging deep to try and find all the other stuff we released. But Cut the Cue, Who Needs a Love Like That? That was one of ours as well, which is on here. But then, so working with um, local artists, we did some hip hop stuff. We did some Soulful House, did some Acid House. And then inevitably that led to record companies, who people who used to come up to uh, the garage in Nottingham and the, the uh, Hacienda would say, right, Parky, do you fancy remixing a track? And when they said how much they'd give me, I went, yeah, of course. And then that just led to me throughout the 90s doing like a remix a week for about seven or eight years. But I think the thing is because we were based in the East Midlands, we were often overlooked because it wasn't Manchester or Liverpool or Glasgow or, or London, which was like, you know, the hub of everything, if, if you believe some people, <laughs> but, um, which is obviously not. But, um, but we'll let you add that one. Yeah, but, um, but it was really good fun. And then uh, in the end, I'd, I moved to London and sold my share in Submission Records. And that share was enough for a deposit on a flat. So, wow. Yeah, exactly. we've noticed that you've included the little known underground gem from Playtime Tunes yeah Shaker Song mm. we grew up in South London with both Trevor Fung and his then engineer Jonathan Smart the mm. team behind that particular cut mm-hmm. as far as we recall it wasn't particularly big in London and the South but we do know it was much loved in the Midlands and the North by the likes of yourselves Mike Norman Cook and others can you remember how you first came across that track well, it was massive, absolutely massive. And I'll tell you why. It's because as the, as the, as the UK was getting really um, house mad 
And although this kind of fits under that kind of broad house umbrella, the fact it wasn't forced to the floor, it was like... So you could mix it out of non-house records. You could mix it out of hip-hop. You could mix it out of a bit of electro. And it would just sit in different parts of any club night really, really well. And I remember when I first... I vividly remember when I first met Trevor Fong is because uh, I first met him at Ziggy's in Streatham because um, he did a night there with Paul Oakenfold. He did indeed, and I used to do the flyers. Well, there you go. And um, Paul Oakenfold, who used to work for Rush Release and was promoing stuff, came up to Nottingham. And this this was the first time I met Paul. Um, it really annoyed me because he didn't tell me he was coming. And he didn't, because otherwise I'd have got him on the guest list, made sure he got drinks and stuff. But the first time I was aware of this weird-looking bloke with a fringe hovering around the DJ box on that, I was like, who is this guy? He keeps looking and staring. And every time I try to catch his eye and attract his attention, he'd, he'd move off somewhere else. At the end of the night, I'm like, oi, you, come here, what? He goes, all right, mate, Paul Oakenfold. I went, you're Paul Oakenfold. You send me music, Rush Release. Why didn't you tell me you are coming? He goes, well, mate, because I, I see your charts in Blues and Soul, and I couldn't believe that he, no way does he play these tunes. What kind of attitude's that? <laughs> That's that London-centric nonsense. No, it again, does sound it? like Paul, to be honest. <laughs> but then I thought, well, fair, well, fair enough. And he went, oh, I've got to say, mate, that was brilliant. I love it, I love it. So we kind of had a, had a drink and stuff. Next minute he's going like, you should bring, oh, I won't do his accent anymore, you should bring a coach to my club night in London in Streatham called, what was the club night called? Project. Project, that's yeah. it. And we did, we put a coach together and we drove down, got lost on the North Circular, finally made it to Ziggy's in Streatham. Remember all the pink and blue neon um, nonsense going on. And that night, Paul was DJing and Farley Jack Master Funk and Daryl Pandy did a live PA of Love Can't Turn Around where Daryl Pandy was stabbing himself with forks. <laughs> And then I had to follow that, and I had to DJ, and that's when I first met Trevor Fung. And um, the Shaker song, it's like, see, if you go back and, and dig out a lot of old tunes, some of them don't stand the test of time. The reason Shaker song is on this album is because it does stand the test of time. Like all the other, all the 36 tracks on the CD, the ones that didn't make it are the ones that haven't aged very well. These all stand the test of time. Trevor would be really pleased to hear you saying things like that. I mean, I, I don't keep in touch with him as much these days. He actually lives up in Stafford now, believe it or not. So I've heard. Yeah. I, I saw him recently. I think it was at a Clockwork Orange night and we keep meaning to hook up because I'm about an hour north of Stafford. I did I did try and call him this week about that track because, you know, I know the track well. He, he used to have a whole box of these playtime tunes. He, he couldn't get rid of them down here. Shaker Song's so fantastic. We we did a version of it in our Hacienda Classical show. Oh, you did? In, uh, I can't remember if it was the first year or the second year, but I think I might bring it back for this year's show. Right. To um, hear, to hear uh, obviously, we, we, I mean, there's an electronic backing with the drums and the bass line, but when you hear a, the, the real strings going... Amazing. So uh, it's a, just a great, great advert for British creativity, I think. And of course, let's not forget Trevor Fong, also a great DJ. Yeah. Often overlooked in the story Definitely. of the history of British house music. Well said.
understand that in more recent years you've hooked up again with your old nude and Hacienda sparring partner, Mike Pickering, to deliver the Hacienda Classical Project. Mm. With sellout performances at the Castlefield Bowl Manchester, Glastonbury Pyramid Stage and the Royal Albert Hall in London. Can you tell us a bit more about how that idea came about and if there are further plans to develop this further? There are actually, and can I just, before I go into that, when you say your fellow nude um, partner, Mike Pickering, we've never, ever been nude together. <laughs> well, apart from, apart from that one time in Sydney. <laughs> but maybe that's another story for another time. Um, true story, when, when Mike said, you've got to come up and cover my, um, come up to, to nude night, I said, nude night? Yeah, yeah, nude night. I really was worried that people were actually going to be naked. <laughs> Thankfully, they weren't. The reason it was called Nude Night was because it was all about stripping everything down to the to the basics. Yeah, Mike and I, um, we still DJ together. We started doing uh, club nights together again under the Hacienda uh, brand. I, I, I love digging out old tunes from time to time, but I love digging out the ones that people have forgotten about rather than the obvious ones. But as people who used to go to Hacienda come back into the clubbing um, sphere because their kids have grown up and they've left home they want to hear those tunes that are special to them when they're younger but as a DJ you don't want to keep playing the same old tunes so Mike and I were like what how can we keep our original clubbers happy you can't alienate these people who put us where we are we were like thinking what can we do and then it got to five in the morning and it's like the hotel like we're going to, we're going to set up for breakfast now you need to leave so we're going up to our rooms and the lift door opened and these two musicians got out with their violins and stuff in their cases. And we got in the lift and the lift door shut. And we looked at each other and we can't remember who said it. One of us said, yeah, we should do classical versions of the, yeah, yeah, we should. Actually, we should. And, that, and that's how the idea came about. And then the next morning at breakfast, like, did we really, yeah, we should do that. But because Peter Hook owns the Hacienda name, and Brand, we had to run it past him. He thought it was a stupid idea, but the more we thought about it, we persuaded him to give it a go. So we planned to do a one-off in Manchester in February 2016 at the Bridgewater Hall. It was a, it sold out in 10 minutes, so we put a second date in the week after. Good job we did, because we didn't know if it was going to work. And to be honest, that first show didn't really work. It was a shambles, because we thought, naively, Hacienda Classical, Bridgewater Hall, which is a classical venue, we naively thought people would come in, sit down, and listen. They didn't. It was, it was people, would, you could tell they were dropping their ease before they came in. They were all bloody tanked up to the max. And it was like, afterwards, that was great, but we couldn't hear the orchestra. Oh. So we had a week to put it right, and we did, we put it right, and the next week, it was incredible. Next thing, the Royal Albert Hall are on the phone, we want the show. Brighton Dome are on the phone, we want the show. Festival in Lancaster on the phone. So this one-off ended up being about 12 dates in 2016. So then it was decided to do it in 2017. That's when I said, look, I think this was supposed to be a one-off. If we're going to tour it, it needs to be bigger and better. So 2017 was far better by a long, long way. The first year, Mike and I just chose records between 88 and 92. But in the second year, we kind of stretched it out to the late 90s. And then last year, I said, right, listen, let's go right back to the 70s. So we got a Clash song in there and a Donna Summer song in there. And let's come right up to the 2000s. 
So we got like um, some Blaze stuff in there, like Most Precious Love. Yeah. And it's just worked. But the problem is, we've got, we did 22 dates last year and took it to Switzerland, took it to Dubai. We're doing it again this year, but now I've set the benchmark so high, I'm thinking, how can we top the last year's show? So that's where I'm at the moment. We're definitely, I'm going to bring back some of the tracks that we dropped from, from year one because we've learned so much in the past three years that I think if we revisit some of the tracks from the first year, they're going to be better. But it's what new songs that we put in there. When you go to other countries to do it, obviously you don't take a whole orchestra from over here. Do you just sort of like turn up with the song sheets and give it to an orchestra? Essentially, that's what it's a little bit more common, but essentially, that's it. When we played in Lucerne in Switzerland, we did it with the Lucerne Youth Orchestra. So they get the score and arrangement sent a few weeks in advance so they can have a little play of it. Then we turn up and we run through the show in the afternoon and then two hour break and then we do it live. But the thing with classical musicians, you give them the score, they read it and they do exactly what it says on the paper. Um, we did when we did it in Abu Dhabi, sorry, when we did it in Dubai, um, we took the decision because it was, it was two nights and uh, being the mid, uh, Dubai there was quite a big budget, we actually flew some of the Manchester Camerata out there, which was a really good move because the, this was the end of a 22-day tour and um, we got our main players, so that kind of added to the whole thing. When, when, when you're doing it, what do you and Mike do? You standing there with sticks or...? No. <laughs> now, this is, a, this is a good question because um, when you score and arrange everything, once you've committed to it and you have a backing track that does all the stuff the orchestra can't do, so that a lot of the acid sounds, the drum machines and the bass lines mainly, um, once, once, that's print, once the backing track's made and the score's printed, that's it, you can't change it. You're stuck with that for the rest of that year. But as a DJ, I've spent my whole life behind the decks making it up as I go along, right? As you know, you don't plan it too much. You have a rough idea in your yeah. head what you're going to do. You might be playing something and think, Wow, I've never I've never heard this before. That reminds me of this. Have I got this? Yeah. So you can you can mix and match and adapt as you go along. You can't do that with Hacienda Classical. But I thought it was important that there was some kind of DJ spontaneity in the show. So what Mike does, he has lots of effects. So when you hear booms and crashes and boo and all that stuff, that's Mike. And he just makes it up as he goes along and it works. And what I do, I've got Serato with two turntables. So I'm doing all the old old school DJ scratching and cutting up, spinning acapellas over the instrumental parts, but not always the same acapella to keep the orchestra on their toes and the choir on their toes. And then I've got a couple of keyboards and a sampler with all the kind of obvious samples that you know, like, oh yeah, check this out, and woo, sirens and stuff. But then I play some of the, some of the synth riffs, I'll do those live, and then add to the bass line with a bit of funkiness. So if I decide to do something a bit different from one show to the next, that to me, it keeps that DJ spontaneity there, but it confuses the hell out of the choir. We're not just waving our arms around, pretending to do stuff like some other people allegedly do. <laughs> We are actually working hard, and I have my own copy of the score because, as a musician, I can read music, and I'm referring to my notes. And Tim Crooks, our amazing conductor and arranger, who, who does all the scores, everything, I'm, I'm following him for some cues. And and this year, well, last year rather, I actually had to sing lead vocal on a couple of songs Brilliant. as well, which is going right back to what I did for as a DJ, which was sing and play saxophone in bands. And so you could argue I've literally just gone back to what I did before as a DJ. Gone full circle. Be it on a much grander scale. 
finally, uh, what's Grand Park up to in 2019? What plans do you have for the forthcoming year ahead? What gigs do you have lined up? And what rocks your boat musically these days? Well, I will direct you to my website, thisisgrahampark.com. And if you click on gigs, you'll see where I'm playing in the coming weeks and months. I'm already working on this year's Hacienda Classical Show, which is a bit of a challenge because we've got to bring some new songs in, but we've got to keep some of the ones that everyone knows. So that's quite difficult. It's got to be the best show yet. In my alternative uh, part of my life, I'm a senior lecturer in creative media technology at Glyndu University in Wrexham and also um, do stuff at Lippa in Liverpool. So that's something that's uh, ongoing. Uh, obviously, father of two moody 14-year-old teenage twin boys, um, <laughs> husband, dog owner. Uh, I do my own, the, the, the Long Live House radio show, which I've been doing, for, uh, I think it's about 12 years since I stopped doing proper um, commercial radio. But rather than go, well, that's a chapter that's closed, I started making my weekly radio show and that's syndicated all around the world. So I'm still doing that. Uh, I cannot wait to get back on my mountain bike because... Um, Obviously, you can't see this because we're on the radio, but I'm currently on crutches because on the 3rd of January, I had total knee replacement surgery. That's just age, wear and tear, and a mountain bike accident from the 90s come back to haunt me. I can't wait to get back on my mountain bike because when I'm bombing along uh, the River Mersey and up and down Hill and Vale, that's when I get all my ideas because I gave up uh, drinking and all the periphery stuff that's associated with drinking on Christmas Day 2016 when George Michael died. <laughs> Best thing I ever did. So more exciting things coming your way in 2019 with a bionic knee <laughs> and no painkillers because <laughs> since June last year, the whole of the Hacienda Classical Tour last year, from the first show in Glasgow in May to the last show in Dubai in November, I had to, to take tramadol and cocodamol to get through those shows so really although they were amazing shows and I loved them I, I don't think I was firing on all cylinders so you wait till this year I might even get a dance routine in there <laughs> fantastic well thanks very much Graham no, thank um, you. and we look forward to seeing you when you come down for those Albert Hall gigs can I just say long live house well we hope you enjoyed that Mucho Soul interview special with Graham Park the album is out now on the Rhino label as a triple pack CD or double vinyl album. Just search for Grand Park Presents Long Live House Volume 1, the 1980s at all good record stores, both on the street and of course online. We'll be back next week with another Mucho Soul Show when we'll return to business as usual. Until then, enjoy the rest of your week and catch you next time. Mucho Soul, we out of here. <laughs>